0: While many may think of the Ku Klux Klan as being primarily a southern concern, in the first part of the 20th century, larger cities to the north also had factions of the KKK, including Chicago. This is the story of the Ku Klux Klan in Chicago. I'm Tommy Henry, host of the Chicago History Podcast. Before we get into it, this episode deals with racism, anti-Semitism, and other religious intolerance and violence. And while this is normally where I would say this is not appropriate for young ears, here is what I'd rather say. Have a listen and decide whether this is something to share with those who might benefit from a discussion about the issues presented here. For those of you not familiar with the Ku Klux Klan, other than white robes, cross burnings, and many horrible acts directed at minorities, here's a little history on that group. As of this writing, there have been three significant Ku Klux Klan formations. The first developed after the end of the Civil War, when a group of former Confederate soldiers founded the Ku Klux Klan in Pulaski, Tennessee, as a social club the social club quickly grew into a violent white supremacist group headed by Nathan Bedford Forrest, an ex-Confederate general and well-known slave trader. Historians agree that the original KKK attracted those who fought on the losing side of the Civil War and many Southerners who opposed Reconstruction, the name given to the effort to reintegrate Southern states from the Confederacy into the United States which included four million newly freed people. Unfortunately, under the administration of President Andrew Johnson, efforts toward Reconstruction were almost immediately undone by restrictive black codes passed by southern state legislatures in order to control the labor and behavior of those formerly enslaved people and other African Americans. The members of the newly formed Ku Klux Klan refer to themselves as the Invisible Empire, invisible since the order was intended to be a secret society, and empire to give the impression that the group's reach was expansive. While it is true that members of the 1860s Democratic Party helped create the KKK, KKK, It was a small splinter group of a small splinter group of Democrats that were angry with the Republican Party's efforts toward Reconstruction. By 1870, state governments in the South, troubled by the KKK's actions, sought help from Congress, resulting in the passage of three enforcement acts, the strongest of which was the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. Ulysses S. Grant used this new federal authority to stamp out Klan activity in South Carolina. Still, white supremacy continued to assert its hold on the South, As the Jim Crow laws of the South, which limited the advancement of newly freed blacks, became more commonplace and support for Reconstruction died off, the original KKK died off as well. Fast forward to February 8, 1915, that's when D.W. Griffith's controversial film The Birth of a Nation, about the Civil War and Reconstruction, depicted the Ku Klux Klan as valiant saviors of a post-war South that had been ravaged by northern carpetbaggers and those pesky, immoral former slaves. Told from a heavily Confederate-leaning point of view, the film's success helped reinforce existing prejudices and further heightened America's anti-immigrant climate by romanticizing the Klan keeping a close eye on the success of the birth of a nation and its accompanying message was a white supremacist in Georgia named William Joseph Simmons considered to be the founder of the second version of the Ku Klux Klan. Simmons began to accompany screenings of the birth of a nation with shows of his own, with fellow Klansmen dressed in white sheets and Confederate uniforms, parading in front of theaters on hooded horses Firing rifles into the air in front of the theaters. The birth of a nation essentially became a recruiting tool for the new KKK to attract scared racist whitey, but this time the Invisible Empire wasn't content to just stay in the South. They also weren't only going to focus their hatred on Blacks. This time around, they would open things up to Jews, Catholics, and really most immigrants. Chicago in 1920 really should not have been receptive to the idea of the Ku Klux Klan gaining a foothold here. Of the roughly 2.7 million people in city limits, 1 million were Catholics, 800,000 were foreign-born immigrants, 125,000 were Jewish, and there were 110,000 African Americans. Now, while the African-American population grew 148% between 1910 and 1920, blacks still only made up just 4.1% of the overall population. There were many foreign language newspapers and one key black-owned newspaper, more on that in a bit, around the city, and pretty easy access to booze even during the Prohibition days. And yet... The first Klansman of note in the Chicago area arrived via Indianapolis in June of 1921. C.W. Love, ironic name, was a regional commander referred to as a Grand Goblin who oversaw 41 lesser Midwest recruiters from an office on Clark Street in Chicago. Late in the afternoon of August 16, 1921, roughly 10,000, that's 10,000 local Klansmen began to gather on Central Park Avenue, just south of Foster Avenue in Chicago's Albany Park neighborhood. As they prepared to depart the city around sundown, word spread through the crowd that the KKK's top guy, the Imperial Wizard himself, William Simmons, had traveled from Atlanta to take part in the ceremony. This caravan of 10,000 clansmen traveled to an area near Route 12 and Old Rand Road in Lake Zurich. For those of you not familiar with the geography of Chicago and the suburbs to the northwest, that is roughly 30 miles away, and this is in 1920s transportation, long before expressways were part of the landscape. That must have taken forever. By the time the crowd arrived in Lake Zurich, it had grown to over 12,000 people. The site of the event, a 250-acre farm, was owned by Charles Wiegmann. Yes, the same Charles Wiegmann who once owned the Chicago Cubs and built Wiegmann Field, now known as Wrigley Field. A steady rain fell as 2,376 blindfolded candidates kneeling before an altar were naturalized into the Invisible Empire after they kissed the American flag and stated their vows. The crowd cheered while William Simmons described their objective as, quote, the perpetuation of law, order, peace, and justice, end quote. By late August 1921, estimates put the number of KKK members nationwide and at 800,000 and growing. This was at a time when the U.S. population was roughly 108.5 million. Nationally, the liberal New York World Newspaper was one of the first to write about the activities of the new Klan. Newspapers across the country reprinted the world's article about the Klan, yet strangely, the article was not syndicated in Chicago. Issues of the East Coast paper were sold here in Chicago, and word began to spread. Concerned by reports of violence in the southern states attributed to the Klan, the United States House of Representatives initiated an investigation of the Klan in the fall of 1921. Unfortunately for the Klan's opponents, this inquiry backfired by providing the Klan with a, quote, "...vast amount of gratuitous and invaluable advertising." End quote. Appearing before the Congressional Committee, William Simmons, the Klan's leader, gave a masterful performance and disavowed all acts of violence committed in the Klan's name. The House of Representatives later dropped the investigation. While many local newspapers didn't seem bothered by the new KKK in Chicago and even accepted advertising money from them, I'm looking at you, Chicago Tribune, The Chicago Defender was quick to express its concern. A little background on the Chicago Defender. It was founded in 1905 by Robert Abbott with a first issue of 300 copies. Publisher Abbott used the paper to call out racial, economic, and social discrimination. Within 10 years, circulation was 16,000. And two years later, circulation of the Chicago Defender jumped to 100,000 copies per week and by 1920, circulation reached 230,000. By the 1950s, it was the largest black-owned newspaper in the world. In the 1910s, the Defender printed detailed stories about lynchings and other racial atrocities in the South, while encouraging Southern African Americans to head north for better opportunities, and was primary in what is known as the Great Migration. Calling the Klan, quote, A menace to this and any community and quote former Governor Edward F. Dunn and attorney Clarence Darrow organized a national unity council which sought legislation to eliminate the Invisible Empire. The National Equal Rights League convened a special session at the Pilgrim Baptist Church in Chicago and sent a telegram to President Warren Harding about the issue. Also none too happy with the KKK becoming a thing in Chicago, and I gotta say this one surprised me, the Canaryville Social Club slash baseball team turned Irish street gang known as Reagan's Colts. The same Irish street gang responsible for much of the violence against African Americans during the Chicago race riots of 1919 and the gang credited with inventing drive-by shootings. In case you're thinking that the Reagan's cult's racist agenda would be right in line with the KKK, well, Reagan's cults were more incensed by the KKK's anti-Catholicism views. In September of 1921, Reagan's cults went as far as to hang an effigy of a white-cheated Klansman near Chicago stockyards as a not-so-subtle warning while 3,000 people watched. On September 19, 1921, the Chicago City Council pledged to rid Chicago of this new menace. This is the slightly abridged version. You'll get the idea. Resolved that the City Council of Chicago officially condemns the presence of the Ku Klux Klan in Chicago and pledges its services to the proper authorities to rid the community of this organization, And because Chicago, the Klan used these preventative measures as an example that alien elements were gaining control of American life and swift action needed to occur to protect God-given freedoms. Enrollment in the Klan jumped once again because, my freedoms. In one October meeting, 500 new members were inducted, and by January of 1922, Chicago had, quote, the largest membership of any city in the United States, end quote. 1922 saw the Klan begin to gain large numbers of members in the states of California, Oregon, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, and, yes, Illinois. Headed by a new imperial wizard, a Dallas dentist named Hiram Evans, the Klan continued to limit its membership to American-born white Protestants. Charismatic clan speakers employed repeated common messages wherever they appeared. Immigrants were often blamed for most of the American society's ills and the reason members had trouble finding work. Foreigners were referred to as dirt, scum, and filth. The clan appealed to the war-inspired spirit of 100% Americanism. If this all sounds too familiar and recent, well... On the afternoon of Saturday, June 3rd, 1922, an estimated 2,500 automobiles, each bearing a mystic number, passed through suburban Lamont, Illinois, on their way to Plainfield, Illinois, about 15 miles southwest of Lamont. It was at a farm in Plainfield that a reported 35,000 Klansmen attended the ceremony in which 2,000 men were naturalized by taking the oath welcoming them into the Invisible Empire. An invitation had been extended to reporters, but those reporters ended up being held back at the entrance. According to the article in the Chicago Tribune, the candidates were, quote, grouped before the throne and went through the rites attendant on taking the vows of the organization, end quote. In addition to the flaming cross, a group of men stood in a large circle with arms folded to block the view of anyone trying to see the proceedings. These candidates, like those before, kissed the American flag, swore to obey the injunctions of the Ku Klux Klan, to uphold the supremacy of the white race, and to aid the defenseless. As for this kissing the flag thing, I mean, who does that? Oh, right. Right. Late June 1922 saw the creation of the American Unity League, dedicated solely to the eradication of the KKK in Chicago and the nation. Later that fall, the AUL would begin to print a weekly newspaper called Tolerance, which published the names, addresses, and occupations of thousands of Chicago-area KKK members. More on that in a moment. One of the biggest initiations of new members in the Chicago area occurred on August 19, 1922, when 25,000 enthusiastic voices sang Onward Christian Soldiers, while 4,650 inductees, many still in their work clothes, pledged their allegiance to the Invisible Empire in a field near 91st Street and Harlem Avenue in southwest suburban Oak Lawn. The top clansmen at the event were quick to tell the reporter they allowed to be there at the event that it would have attracted 50,000 people had it not been vacation season. The very next day, at an inner-city Protestant congregation at 23rd and Michigan Avenue, services were being held in the basement as the spire of the church had been torn away in a recent storm. As Reverend Johnston Myers delivered a sermon in front of 600 parishioners, the doors opened and a dozen white-robed figures entered. The leader of those figures proclaimed, quote, "The Knights of the Ku Klux Klan have come to do their part in this cause." Five hundred additional Klansmen filed in, each dropping money into a collection basket. The white-robed men turned, saluted, and left. A later count of the money revealed $1,200, a little more than $19,400 in today's money was left by the Klansmen. There were other generous donations made to various churches by the KKK, and while some of them may have been made by those sincerely wishing to help, it really plays in news reports of the day like disgraced actors working at a soup kitchen while news cameras film. Tolerance, the anti-clan newspaper started by the American Unity League, sold for a dime at newsstands, bus stops, and churches. Their September seventeenth, 1922 supply of 2,700 newspapers, which listed 150 Klansmen, quickly sold out. The following week's 17,500 issues quickly sold out as well, and by the end of the year, Tolerance had a circulation of 150,000 copies. Being called out as a Klan member in Tolerance had consequences. Augustus E. Olson, president of the Washington Park National Bank, was a well-known businessman on the South Side when his name was printed in the fifth issue of Tolerance. A large number of his bank's customers, many of whom were Irish, Catholic, or Jewish, hold their money from the bank. Withdrawals soon totaled thousands of dollars. The bank's board of directors suggested Olson step aside. The ranks of KKK members not wanting their businesses or community standing to suffer began to thin. The number of neighborhoods in Chicago and the suburbs that had Klan chapters in the 1920s is too long to read here, but I will include it in the Chicago History Podcast social media pages later this week if you are interested. Dare I say, bonkers. In June of 1922, three Klansmen were arrested for speeding on Archer Avenue in South Suburban Justice, Illinois, In their possession was two revolvers, two blackjacks, a Cat-09 tails, that's a whip, and a Klan membership card. The three admitted to police they had driven to rural Morris, Illinois, to flog a chiropractor for insulting a teenage girl. Other than that one reported instance, no significant acts of violence were attributed to the Klan in Chicago in the 1920s. By 1923, the city of Chicago was actively trying to root out Klansmen and keep them off city payrolls. A fireman named William H. Green had already been suspended, and another, called Otto Novotny, a suspected Klansman, was evasive under questioning. When asked about his involvement with the Klan, according to the Chicago Tribune article, Novotny replied, quote, "...I'm not with any organization prejudiced against the government." Novotny said and smiled, "...whether I am a Klansman or not is my own private affair." Quote. Two months later, Novotny was on trial, accused of conduct quote, "...unbecoming a member of the fire department." Opposing sides argued over the wording of the oath he may have taken, finally admitting he was a Klan member, and challenging the prosecution to prove that there was anything wrong with being a Klansman called to the stand was Robert E. Shepard, treasurer of the American Unity League and managing editor of Tolerance, who was introduced to the crowd by the prosecuting attorney as someone who, quote, knows more about the Klan than the Imperial Wizard himself. Under cross-examination, Shepard admitted he paid seven investigators $60 a week and two investigators $100 to infiltrate the Klan and report back on their activities. For the defense, H.K. Ramsey, national secretary for the Klan, testified that the Klan was a Christian fraternal order on a religious basis. Roman Catholics and Jews, provided Jews embrace Christianity, were not barred from membership, but, quote, Negroes, he admitted, could never join the Klan because the order is against miscegenation, end quote. Uh, For reference, I had to look it up. Miscegenation, it's been a while since I've heard it, It refers to the interbreeding of people considered to be of different racial types. Basically, meet the new clan same as the old clan, against the mixing of bloodlines between whites and blacks. In many states, this applied to a mixed-race couple marrying or even living together. Unfortunately, it wasn't just the clan that felt this way in 1920s America. It wouldn't be until 1967, that the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that state laws prohibiting miscegenation were unconstitutional. William Wrigley Jr., the wealthy gum maker, and in 1923 the primary owner of the Chicago Cubs baseball team – he wouldn't become the full owner until 1925 – was also dragged into KKK issues when his name was published by the anti-Klan paper Tolerance – as being a Klan member. Wrigley's libel suit, along with suits from others named, totaled $150,000. That's a little more than $2.4 million in today's money. It was revealed that W.J. Winston, the man who allegedly obtained Wrigley's signature for application to the Klan, forged it and that the Klan was using Wrigley's supposed involvement in the KKK as a recruiting tool. By 1925, an estimated 200,000 white Protestants living in Chicago and the surrounding suburbs had joined the local KKK. A significant scandal involving the murder of a white woman named Madge Oberholzer by a prominent Klan member in Indiana is considered to be the beginning of the end for the second version of the Ku Klux Klan, but unfortunately there was still a little life left of the Klan in Illinois. Even the farming community of DeKalb, Illinois, about 65 miles due west of downtown Chicago and home to Northern Illinois University, had its share of Klan activity in the 1920s. In 1927, the DeKalb, Illinois newspaper The Daily Chronicle reported that a large meeting of the community's KKK members would be held a mile north of the city on the 4th of July, expected to be the largest of its kind. Featured speakers would include Imperial Wizard Hiram W. Evans, and if that wasn't enough, there would be an evening parade and fireworks. Honestly, I can't help but wonder how many people were duped into going to events like this with the promise of parades and fireworks, only to find out it was a meeting of a hate group. That's going to spoil an Independence Day in DeKalb, 1927, for sure. According to Kenneth Jackson's book, The Ku Klux Klan in the City, 1915-1930, to 1930, used extensively for this episode, 40% of Klansmen from the 1920s KKK were from the states of Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. Not a good look, Illinois. The National Klan was dying quickly as members left in large numbers after not seeing the benefits promised by the organization and that whole naming of names thing did them in. One of the last gasps was to hold its annual convention at Chicago's 8th Street Theater, but this did little to bolster any confidence. One year later, the Illinois Klan was for all purposes dead. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act was signed into law by President Lyndon B. Johnson, legally ending the segregation that had been institutionalized by Jim Crow laws. One year later, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 halted efforts to keep minorities from voting. And in 1968, the Fair Housing Act ended discrimination in renting and selling homes. On paper, at least. Thanks for listening to today's episode about the Ku Klux Klan in Chicago. As always, if you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I'll have plenty of pictures and items related to the events discussed in this episode on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages throughout the coming week as well as links to books and such if you'd like to learn more. Anything purchased through those links, not just the items listed, may earn this page a small commission and help offset production costs. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on those social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at JKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. If you have time, please rate and review the podcast and tell a friend about it. It really does make a difference. I will be back soon with another chapter in Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.